Hier komen we in vreemd. My name is Ros Ward and you're listening to Red Flag Radio, the podcast of Red Flag newspaper here in Australia. And um, I want to acknowledge that we record this podcast on Indigenous land, on Aboriginal land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And stay tuned for an episode specifically that we are recording very soon on um, the question of black deaths in custody, an Indigenous activist coming to talk to us about that. So... It's definitely an issue we will be following um, on this show. So this is a show about uh, politics, history, theory and activism from a revolutionary, radical socialist perspective. And I'm joined by people each episode who are involved in struggles, campaigns and debates on the ground, historians who were part of the struggle. And we'd really appreciate it now if you would help us share this podcast on your social media and we are on iTunes and we're on Spotify. So if you're on iTunes, you can rate us and leave a review if you like it. If you don't like it, don't leave a review. Thank you. <laughs> um, so on this episode, I'm joined by Liam Ward, who's an RMIT lecturer, socialist activist and filmmaker. And our special guest today is George Jacquera, who's a Chilean revolutionary activist based in Australia, been part of the revolutionary left for um, quite a few years now, haven't you, George? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's here to talk to us about what's happening in Chile right now. And to explore some of the history that's led us to the situation that we're seeing here um, from overseas. But uh, I know George has some connections on the ground in Chile as well. First question, do we say Chile or Chile? It, um, well, it's Chile. <laughs> Chile. Okay, we'll do our best. I know there's always people just like fumbling over it and then we say it different ways. Okay, good. Um, all right. Well, George, do you want to tell us a bit about your background, your history? I know that um, uh, your family ended up leaving Chile as sort of exiles when the dictatorship of Pinochet um, was imposed. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Um, sure. Well, I suppose my... Um memories of that time in history are childhood memories, um, probably uh, all the more reason why they're sort of in, um, so deeply ingrained. Um, I was in primary school at the time of the coup in Chile, um, so my memories are like you'd expect of a, of a child. You know, they're more memories that are sort of trauma rather than intellectual as mm. such. Um, and of course they were rationalized with time and with conversations with my family, uh, here, my immediate family and abroad, because pretty much my entire family was exiled throughout the globe, not just Australia. So, uh, it does make for, uh, ease of travel overseas, <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I've kept up with a lot of them all over the place. So we'll, we'll keep up. Um, yeah. And so why was it that your family in particular? My, uh, family. Father is one of five brothers, all of whom are, um, interestingly, probably a good reflection of Chilean society, really, and politics more particularly. Of the five, one of them was, is uh, a right-winger, um, a working-class right-winger who basically left, literally escaped in his words, uh, but left Chile when Allende was elected. Oh. So uh, before the coup, of course, three years before. Uh, and the other four were members each of, so father and one brother, members of the Chilean Socialist Party, left wing of it, both of them, 
uh, one, a member of the movement of the revolutionary left, and the other, uh, quite a leading member to this day of the Communist Party of Chile. So they were quite a good reflection. Interesting family (laughs) dinners. Yeah, Yeah, quite a good reflection of politics in the country and and the divisions. Yeah. So um, I guess probably uh, when we're thinking about what's happening in, in the country today, going back to 1973 is a reasonable starting point. So um, the events of September 1973, the coup that led to Pinochet and and the end of the Allende government, do you want to see if you can kind of sum up some of the key political um, I suppose lessons or outcomes? I suppose the main thing to say is that um, Chile in that period in the late 60s, early 70s represented probably the most advanced um, politically conscious working class, certainly in Latin America and con- really the Spanish-speaking world at the very least, and on a global scale was up there in terms of not just the level of agitation, mobilisation, but actual political consciousness. Because you can have a lot of agitation, for example, say Venezuela over the last 10 years, a lot of mobilisation, a lot of masses in action, but a political level that's not necessarily that high, whereas the Chilean working class by 70 to well, that, those three years, but certainly by the early 70s, the Chilean working class was highly ideologized. So you had massive sort of battalions of the working class were effectively Marxists of some sort. Mm. Um, many of them were cater in mm. terms of political a- activism um, and extremely conscious politically and combative and militant. Um, so in that sense, it took, it was always going to take quite a violent uh, reaction um, from the ruling class to uh, stop that in its tracks. Um, it was going to take some sort of decapitation, which is exactly what happened mm. with the coup and the period that followed the coup. Yeah. So the 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 coup that happened. I mean, when you talk about a violent reaction, I think often people don't know the kind of um, the barbarity, the the mass murders that took place and the disappearances and all of that um, after that, the, the Pinochet coup? Yeah, look, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, people have probably seen the numbers. I mean, to, to give it some sort of, um, I suppose, more um, personal insight, um, in terms of my uh, dad's five brothers, for example, within days, uh, my dad and, th- and two of his brothers were getting the th- another brother, into the Mexican embassy. So that was within days because mm. if he didn't, he was particularly involved um, with the Socialist Party and he had to get out very quickly. So there was thousands of people doing this, climbing embassies of walls. I still remember as a kid, one of my childhood memories is visiting this uncle of mine, Rafael, in the Mexican embassy. And even as a kid, I remember how packed this embassy was. Yeah. So just people all over the ground, you know, let alone inside. Then uh, another one of my uncles went underground immediately. And then the third one, which was another example of this sort of thing that was happening to people, was probably within inches of being disappeared. And by pure fluke, when he was taken, he was taken at his workplace, which was a bank, he was a teller. And when he was taken, my dad and I were in the bank at the time just to say hello over lunchtime. And that meant that we were able to, like many people were, you know, if they were lucky enough, they were able to report that he'd been taken, which meant you had some chance that you wouldn't be disappeared. Because yeah. apart from the, you know, several thousand killed, there were tens of thousands disappeared. And a lot of, and there are still families, right, who have still have no idea what happened to their relatives. Oh, that's incredible. You know, I'm, I'll have to sort of take a side point here because I was 
particularly taken aback recently being in Argentina, which experienced a similar thing. Mm. And in some respects, the disappearances were more substantial just numerically. And to this day in Argentina, um, there are children who are discovering who their real parents were because when they disappeared, people in Argentina, this was more common there than in Chile, um, often, of course, they would um, uh, take their children and then these children would be adopted out to rich families yeah. and never know who their parents were. And there are still people being reunited like 40 years later in Argentina with their actual biological parents. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, it reminds me, a couple of things you've just said remind me of, uh, you know, the Patricia Guzman films about Chile, the, you know, in terms of, well, two things in particular, uh, the heightened level of political consciousness of the Chilean working class in that period of the early 70s, which is demonstrated so clearly uh, in some of those films from the Battle of Chile where they take you inside the workers' committees, the factory committees, the district cordones, and you see these factory workers, transport workers, having these amazing debates. And then in terms of the disappearances, uh, Guzman made a follow-up to the films a few years ago called Nostalgia for the Light, which is uh, about the parents of the disappeared who are sorting through uh, the, you know, essentially the graveyards, you know, these kind of abandoned mass graves looking for the bones of their loved ones, which is at the same time as the Chilean uh, you know, equivalent of the CSIRO has built this telescope to look up at the stars, you know, which is just this amazing kind of metaphor for... Yeah. yeah. In terms of the mobilisations, the current mobilisations, it's one of the things that gives so much vehemence, um, anger and impetus, or momentum, I should say, to the um, movement, the fact that you've got this intergenerational um, thing going on. Um, so p probably everybody's seen on Facebook, you know, the uh, pictures of not only the young 17-year-olds mm. or what 12-year-olds on the street mm. in the street fighting, but the 80-year-old grandparents, you know, who are out there with sticks hitting police and so forth. And that comes from obviously all that history. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what happened to – so there's an important consequence for the left and you use the – the, the term decapitated, and I know you've talked about that, that sort of like one of the main priorities of Pinochet and the military coup coming in and the ruling class was to basically annihilate as much of the leadership of the left as they possibly could at that point. And you say decapitate, and it's kind of like a literal thing, killing, exiling, disappearing, all of the main leadership of the left. So you get this whole generation basically almost just, disappear from the political scene. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you can quantify it in terms of um, one's own political experience in any country. You mm. know, if you take a country like Australia, at any given moment there might be, and certainly in a, in a moment of heightened class struggle, there might be 10,000, 20,000 key activists, key in terms of, you know, not necessarily their depth of thinking, but in terms of their positioning as well, where they are and which trade union and so forth. Well, likewise in Chile, you know, there was probably you know, not 10, probably 20, 30, 40,000 such activists, and a whole chunk of those were basically either, if not killed or disappeared, forced into exile. Uh, over a million Chileans were forced into exile. At the time, in 73, the population was only 10 million. So you're talking about a substantial portion. Yeah. Really, I think the only country that's outdone it in that respect was El Salvador, where 2 million out of 5 million population uh, make up the diaspora um, for political reasons. So... Basically, you know, there were phases. So the dictatorship concentrated in the first few years between 73, uh, September, 7, uh, September 11, 73, and about 78. They concentrated on 
uh, the MIA in particular, because they were organised underground, unlike the other forces. Can you explain what the MIA So the MIA yeah. was the movement, in Spanish it's Movimiento Izquierda Revolucionario, which means movement of the revolutionary left. Mm-hmm. And they were, I suppose, the most radical political force, numbering in the uh, several tens of thousands, um, at least 10 to 20,000 well-organised um, cadre. Um, and they also probably didn't help themselves in some respects, given that they had a policy that uh, their members not leave Chile except in a coffin was their policy, which meant that literally apart from one or two who were sent to Cuba and a couple other places just to handle things uh, or for training, in some cases military training, um, apart from those ones and twos, um, they stayed in the country and many, many of them, including their most famous General Secretary Miguel Enriquez, were shot down in combat. So he was killed in October 5, 1974, after about a year underground, leading the underground resistance. After they finished off the mid to some extent, or in large part, then they moved in on the um, Communist Party, which was the most organised, although a lot of their key leaders had exiled um, earlier. Mm. Wow. So at the same time as the kind of um, military repression and the killings and all of that of the left, Pinochet introduces a new economic model, which is also an important background, I think, to what's happening now. So um, the the kind of the experiment for neoliberalism begins with the Pinochet government in Chile. Was there actually a period then where economic situation improved for ordinary people after, after that sort of began? Was there anything that people sort of could hold on to as good about the regime or...? Well, I mean, there was an inevitable sort of, in, in inverted commas, uh, improvement economically immediately to some degree because the country had been under effective sanctions by the US, mm. you know, and on top of that, there was generalised hoarding by the sort of petty bourgeois in Chile. So, you know, like you, you couldn't get things, you couldn't get uh, milk, you couldn't get bread sometimes, etc. So in a certain immediate sense, there was a, you know, an improvement once things are stabilised, because you got to remember too, in the first sort of weeks, months, and even really the whole first year, it was a complete uh, state of emergency. So you couldn't leave home, you know, the first few weeks, it was after six, then it was extended at 10pm. So in any case, I don't know if people really noticed whether they could get bread or not get bread, because yeah. they were more preoccupied by that. But over time, over about 10 years, there was a certain um, enrichment of, a, a, I suppose, a new middle class um, based on the the privatisations. Because of course, you know, if you, if you privatise everything that was previously state-owned, and you've got to remember that Chile, like most really third world economies, emerging out of the post-war period, everything was nationalised. Whether you were in Egypt or in Chile, you know, pretty much everything was owned by the state in the 50s. Um, so suddenly you nationalise all that. Well, there's some money, even if you give it most of it away, um, there's some money to throw around, mm. you know, and that creates uh, the service industry that it created and so forth in a certain middle class, unstable but a certain middle class. And they became for long periods, you know, the sort of 20% of society that supported the Pinochet regime. Yeah. And so, what was the strategy of the left then in the before the in the eighties, for example, and then coming into the kind of the democratic period, I guess that then happens at, at the fall of the regime. Yeah, I don't know if that's an easy or good story to tell because I think the once once the the movement, the working class, was de- sort of progressively decapitated, so to speak. Um, really, the left <laughs> lost any. In losing the MIA in particular as a single force, as mm. a united single force with a more or less revolutionary 
uh, perspective. In losing them, um, they lost any real potential compass uh, in terms of a, a revolutionary outlook and perspective. Um, the CP stepped into that vacuum and certainly played an important role in terms of the resistance, underground resistance. Mm. They carried it for a period. They carried it in the late 70s and early 80s. They carried that underground resistance. And to some degree, their uh, incredible persistence in Chilean politics is largely attributable to that, the fact that they so successfully did that. They, you know, they, they were in the neighbourhoods organising the resistance. But that didn't mean they had a perspective you know, that took them beyond that, really, mm. except a certain electoralism. Um, which was was sort of thwarted in that period because obviously there was no elections. So, um, and in a sense, has been thwarted since in a different sort of way. Uh, it, but that's really remained the perspective of most of the left in Chile. And of course, that was contributed further to, like it was for everyone in the world post eighty nine and the end of communism, etc. Yeah. And you know, the end of Stalinism and the mass confusion, ideological retreat, mobilization, etc. Meant that you know all that the left could see is elections. Yeah. Um, and, we're probably still at that problem today. Mm. It's an interesting role, uh, uh, the interesting history of the role of the CP in that period, that even when there's no, you know, realistic expectation that you would have an election, you still have these reformist forces who that's still their worldview. You know, I think it does speak a lot to the importance of actually having, you know, trying to build around a revolutionary perspective from the outset. Well, there's a great story in respect to that that goes back uh, to even earlier, which is uh, the MIR uh, at the... Um, by about 1972, the MIR had positioned itself well enough that it could actually begin to manoeuvre tactically to win over, and, and I think their perspective was to fuse with other sections of the left, in particular the Socialist Party, because the Socialist Party, even though that was Allende's party, the Socialist Party as a whole, its membership, and even its president, were way to the left of Allende. Allende's actual political party base was the CP, even though he wasn't a member of it. So the MIA had approached the Socialist Party formally, MAPU and a number of other organisations, and they'd actually called a meeting that was scheduled, pre-scheduled, on the 11th of September 1973. There's amazing accounts mm. in a couple of books of that meeting because it was in a warehouse in Alta Santiago in the working class suburbs. And Manuel, uh, sorry, Miguel Enriquez and a couple of other MIR leaders and leaders from each of the parties arrived at this meeting. Of course, the coup was starting in their back, in, yeah. literally in the background, and the coup's going on. Everyone knows about it. It's being, you know, radios are talking about it. And the CP's line at that meeting was, we won't do anything until the parliament has pronounced itself. I mean, there was the parliament was being bombed, you know, yeah. so it sort of shows you what you're talking about there, Liam. Yeah, incredible. So then after the dictatorship ends, the, the parties sort of get together to form this coalition of uh, democratic coalition. What's the term? Yeah, the uh, MDP, uh, Democratic. Momento Democratico, Popular Democratic Movement. Yeah, and they basically become the party of government or the coalition of government. No, uh, they not don't, from the beginning. They sort of they they emerge out it, it, the government that emerges post the eighty nine plebiscite, which yep. is uh, the plebiscite that gets rid of formally gets rid of Pinochet. Well, keep in mind that There's that also a great film about that, isn't there, Liam? No, it's called. Yes, yeah. have you seen it? I've actually, so, yeah. was, I was very confused by that conversation. It, it, no, it's called no, but yeah. yes, it's called no. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And no, I haven't seen it. Oh, it it's cool. It's if, you, if you like 80s you know, paraphernalia, it's cool too because it's set in the 80s, obviously, and they, they do a good job of that. That referendum, obviously, because the, the, what, what preceded that was quite a massive... Um, 
really pro-democratic you know, mm. dictatorship movement in the 80s, which revived the left. And even the MIR that had been you know, essentially almost extinguished were revived. So a lot of organisations were revived, played important roles. The unions were remobilised, reformed effectively because they'd been disbanded. The, the court, the central union had been federation. There were mass mobilisations. Really big, yeah. I was listening to something that they're basically saying there were mass protests every month just for, you know, years leading up to the referendum, right? Yeah, exactly. And... Um, for a while, those protests were effectively, or uh, the spokes uh, sort of people for it, were a coalition that included not only the MDP, which was all the left parties, mm. but also the Christian Democrats, uh, so the centre forces. Um, and the Christian Democrats at the time had quite a big influence in the newly reformed Union Federation. You know, they might have had 40% of the delegates sort of thing. Um, so they were quite influential in this broader coalition. Um over time, because of the basically the reformist perspective, to put it in a nutshell, the reformist yeah. perspectives of the Communist Party and the Socialist Party, possibly even the Socialist Party in particular, which by then had really moved to the right, uh, more so than the sort of Stalinists who'd stayed in the same old spot they'd been for 100 years, um, basically allowed the Christian Democrats to take hold of that um, movement and steer it towards, well, the, the plebiscite and then, of course, what followed the election and so forth. And, and that was all a very um, controlled process. Like if you got to keep in mind that that referendum got rid of Pinochet, but only as the president. It, it still maintained his lifelong senatorship and the lifelong senatorship of, um, I think it was, I can't remember now, it was 50% or 33% of the senators. So you can see that the constitution still remained and the independence of the military, all of that kind of oh, stuff that's yeah. in the constitution. And that's still really important for what's happening today, right? Yeah. So 2010, we're just, I'm just jumping through history here. Then Pinera becomes the president. Is that, uh, so right? well, yeah, first time, because he's been there twice. Yep. yep. And that was quite a shock for people because he's not of the left. No, he's quite directly, including through sort of familial relations, directly related to Pinochetismo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, that's a, I mean, it's the same old story as everywhere else in the world. You know, a sort of any variation of right-wing populism, you know, will get a Guernsey when the left fails, basically. And that's exactly what happened in a country that you'd expect otherwise, given how political, politicised and so forth population is, that at a certain point, well, 30% of people don't even bother voting. Yep. Uh, and those that do, do protest votes, et cetera, et cetera, and you get election results like that. Yep. And then the resistance, the main form of resistance since, um, well, since well, this century, if you like, in the since 2000 has been really driven by students. Can you say a bit about why students have been the kind of centre of the resistance and kind of continue to be today? Yeah. Um, or young it's, people? It's probably no different to everywhere else in the world. Mm. I mean, young people make revolutions and um, really, I mean, I suppose there's some particularities in that. Um, the um, ability for students to have remained at the vanguard, not just spark it, is a bit more unique, you know, because students as a spark is universal. Um, but in the Chilean context, they've now been in the vanguard since 2006, if you want to put mm. a date on it, the Pinguino Rebellion, the so-called uh, high school student rebellion of 2006. Because their uniforms make them look like, <laughs> like penguins. penguins. Yeah, they do. <laughs> you look it up in Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is um, – that – more slightly more unique situation in Chile um, probably has to do with the fact that out of that particular struggle, the 
um, high school student organisations that consolidated remain to this day. Mm. So, for example, one of the brilliant best statements you can find at the moment on Facebook against the attempted negotiations behind people's back at the moment is by one of the Vosetos, our spokespeople of ASIS, which is one of the two main high school student organisations that go all the way back to, well, actually, they go back to a few years before 2006. Mm. But um, that has given, you know, that, that vanguard role of young people, high school students in particular, a certain consistency over a long period of time, the high level of organisation. The other high school organisation I should mention is more controlled by the CP. Mm. So there's two. And so, uh, yeah, so one has more of a CP influence, but the other one, it's not necessarily tied to a, a political organisational group. No, in the one that I mentioned, there's this great um, um, statement from uh, on Facebook at the moment, it's called ASSES, and they are, basically the difference is that the CONES, the, the one controlled more by the CP, is the inner city schools that tend to be the more privileged public schools. Mm. So privileged, not necessarily in terms of money, but in terms of, you know, that's the smart kids that get in, et cetera. You know, similar phenomena to here. They're yeah. the university high type schools. Whereas ASSES is organised in the Dandenong type equivalent. So in the working class heartlands um, where, you know, people are living it really rough mm. and these kids are living it really rough. So these are the street fighters. I mean, it's these people who make up the bulk of, you know, the trained street fighters um, that come from, you know, this sort of... Yeah. And do those, like a group like ASSES, is that right? Yep. Uh, you know, would these groups have a particular, like how do they see themselves as a political entity? Like so they see themselves as kind of fighting for student rights, I guess for free education and things, but is it sort of broader than that as well? Like the fact that they're the first people to mobilise or the vanguard of what's happening, I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of what they actually see themselves as. Well, partly I think because they define themselves up against GONES, the, the CP-controlled, uh, high school student union, or their federations really more than single. Mm. Um, they tend to have quite a lot, a prevalence of anarchistic politics, but not anarchism necessarily in an ideological sense. Uh, it's more that sort of, you know, the sort of anarchism that comes from the ground, I suppose, uh, in a sort of anarcho-syndicalism too thing going on. Some of them are still influenced though by other left groups. I mean, there are left groups outside of the CP mm. uh, and there are left traditions, even where they're not groups, they're traditions. So for example, the MIR still remains a really important tradition in Chile. It's sort of a bit like the equivalent of a Eureka flag type thing, you know, a bit more than that. But there's, a, you know, so you go to the demos now in Chile and there's mid flags. Yeah. But if you actually look for the mid, well, who would they be, you know? Um, so there's traditions there and these organisations, you know, often look to these traditions. So for example, us as sort of had quite a bit to do with the sprouting in at the university level of a group which um, is basically sort of a Guevara's group of students. So they define themselves very much as a Guevara's group, so non-CP, much more mm. radical, but more Marxist, neo-Marxist than anarchist. So there's these sort of things that sprout yeah. up. And the political level, I mean, just generally, when you look at some of the videos and stuff and like that um, video that was going around of a pretty young-looking high school student, young woman, doing a rap about, like, what's happening politically <laughs> and all their schoolmates are just, like, clapping or cheering along. But it's uh, – and some of the videos of young people just explaining the politics of what the movement and everything, it's just quite incredible from an Australian perspective that, you know, even with – or maybe it's partly because of the, the, the uh, major things that have happened politically in Chile or the nature of the working class or whatever, but – just a general sense of, you know, having debates about who's a Guevarist and who's, you know, still thinks that the CP have anything to offer and anarchists. 
anarcho-syndicalism, all of that kind of stuff is quite amazing. And that's been really visible in this current round of struggle as well. Yeah, no, it is. Look, we were really stunned in, uh, when we were living in Chile in 2013, 14, our kids were doing their school there. And we were always stunned when we'd hung around their mates or whatever, or we're on a train with a lot of high school kids, what they'd be talking about. Mm. Because they'd be talking about not just politics, but history, for example, yeah. like a huge conversation about history. And then looking at even the curriculum, like our kids were going to pretty much the poorest school in central Santiago, very rough school because we didn't want to pay for a private school. Um, and it was amazing the stuff they were doing in the curriculum. It was badly done, you know, lack of resources, et cetera. But it's partly the fact that in Chile and Argentina, especially in Uruguay, those three countries especially, more so than Brazil and even Colombia, those three countries are very Central European in, culturally. Mm. So, you know, like Italy and, and, and France, they have long, proud traditions of intellectualism. So not just left, but intellectualism. I mean, to this day, Buenos Aires is the bookshop capital of the world. Yeah. It has more bookshops than any other. Yeah, and you notice that. You, every street corner is a bookshop. And in Chile still there's that element of that. So there's a... Yeah, it's mixed, obviously, but there's a certain intellectualism, which I suppose is very Central European, I suppose. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, we better talk about what's happening today. <laughs> so um, uh, one of the um, phrases that kind of sums up what is, what's been the spark um, for today, but also how it links to all of that history that we've just talked about is, is the idea of it's not just 30 pesos, it's 30 years of neoliberalism basically, but it's kind of like the increase in the public transport um, fees was the thing that just, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back or the spark really that, that ignited this latest round of rebellion. Is that a pretty good summary of where we are? Yeah. I mean, it was, it's not, it wasn't an insignificant change economically. Like some estimates suggest that that increase um, meant that for a big portion of the population, up to potentially half the population, that raised their monthly transport cost to a quarter of their income. So, yeah. you know, if you think about that, that's it's why, of course, in, in Chile, you know, so much of the working class ride bicycles <laughs> like because you, you can't afford it. Yeah, yeah, you can't afford it. And the levels of inequality is something as well, I think, that people probably, um, you know, people's perceptions of Chile as, uh, well, people have the wrong kind of uh, all sorts of perceptions, but... Some think of it as a more underdeveloped country than it is, which it's not. It's, you know, it's an OECD country, but then at the same time, don't understand the vast levels of inequality. Like the the wealth of the rich in in Chile is really quite staggering, and something I hadn't really considered exactly. Yeah, well, it's amazing. One of the statistics that impressed me from a recent study is um, the um, statistic that says that the 2% richest uh, Chileans actually have the same um, income slash wealth um, as the top 2% in Germany, which you know is about as top as it gets, mm. and the bottom 5% have the same conditions of life, wealth, et cetera, as the bottom 5% of Mongolia. So you, know, you don't need to know too much about Mongolia to know that that's a very poor place, um, which is just one example of it. Mm. But probably a better way of that more um, general, it gives you a more generalised impression, is if you look at... The uh, basic income in Chile, so let's say you're a uh, pensioner, pensioner would be on two to 300 US dollars a month. Uh, many workers would be, well, even when I was working there, I was working there as teaching English, which you'd think would be highly paid, mm. right? And I was on 5,000 pesos, $10 an hour. 
So actually my wage would have been in US dollars, wouldn't have been 300, but it might have been 500 max a month, mm. five, 600. But you got to consider that Chile is rated as having a cost of uh, living at 80% the US level. So basically you're paying for everything the same as in the US, some exceptions because yeah. you know, it's a dairy producing country, so milk's cheaper, whatever, but bread's cheaper, alcohol's cheaper, but that's about it. <laughs> that's where it stops. So basically a lot of people are struggling. In some respect, this is the tricky thing about these days when you talk about third world and especially those sort of third world countries, because in some respects it's not totally unlike the bottom 40% of Australia. So if you think about the bottom 40% of Australia and you take away their credit cards, they're living not far off. Mm-hmm. Um, so especially if you've got two kids, that can make the difference. You know, like being at the bottom 40% without kids is one thing if you've got two yeah. kids, um, which is sort of a, at least an average in Chile. So, yeah. Gives and what does it look like kind of on the ground? Like uh, are the places that people live completely separate? Like how do people get around? Is there any interaction between, you know, what the lives of the ruling class and the lives of the ordinary people? Um, well, no, that's one of the amazing things about um, – uh, countries like Chile's, um, and more and more this is the case in these neoliberal countries that were the pioneer liberal countries. I mean, Bolivia, mm. which is in the news now, is, is even a better example, where the ruling elite is just so, so separated from society that they have no idea, like literally no idea of what goes on. Um, so it means part, part of it is that sometimes they don't even live in the country. Like in Bolivia, half the time, you know, six months of the year, they're probably in Miami. Um, Chile, it's not so much that. It's you can actually isolate yourself within Santiago. Like I used to cycle from sort of working class central Santiago, which is sort of um, service worker, working class, mm. you know, teachers, et cetera, live in the centre in big apartments. I would cycle out to the rich suburbs, which would only be like, you know, 45 minute a cycle. And the world just transforms. Everything is different. You probably see, I don't know if people have seen, it hasn't been so much in the English-speaking uh, Facebook posts I've seen, but there's quite a number of really fascinating Facebook posts at the moment of um, the uh, yellow vests in Santiago. I don't know if you've seen them, which are nothing like the yellow vests. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everyone's making the point that yep. don't confuse them. So it, they're becoming known as yellow vests because they're wearing yellow vests. And these are middle-class vigilantes that are organising in these wealthy suburbs because they realise you know, these demos could be coming their way yep. <laughs> and they're only half an hour up the road. So they're starting to organise with cops, you know, these civil defence things, uh, vigilantes basically. But, yeah, it's entirely different. It's like going – it's not even like going from Footscray to Turak. Like there's a bigger leap. In yeah. the same distance, there's such a much bigger leap. Yeah. I saw some of the footage of those things actually and one of the bloody mayors from one of these towns was involved. This right-wing mayor was involved in organising one of these yellow, yellow vest vigilante groups. Uh, it also reminds me of, you know, this, this idea of the global elite being in a bubble – I think one of the hallmarks of the current, you know, the rebellions of 2019 is, is precisely that sense of befuddlement amongst the elite. You know, so this, um, you know, the, these MPs who don't know what's going on, who I've heard you talk about a few times, you know, the MPs in, MPs in Chile. You might have seen too in, in Hong Kong, the um, like the de- deputy chief secretary or something uh, went on TV a couple of days ago and said, we don't know why everyone's so angry in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. You know, we took the extradition law off the table. Why is everyone still angry? We don't know. <laughs> so it's just yeah. this. It, time and time again, in and country also country. just admitting, uh, like also being so kind of so removed that not only do you not know how removed you are, but you're also prepared to admit it because you don't realise the reaction that you might get from admitting it. Like, you know, you told a story, George, about someone on TV, a very rich person, saying, "Oh, we didn't know 
people found it so, people found it so difficult and they were so sort of pissed off about well, inequality. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We didn't know it existed. And then we didn't realise you'd be so bothered <laughs> that we fly around in helicopters and eat bloody gold and whatever the fuck, you know, <laughs> and you are struggling to like buy a loaf of bread. Oh. And then we put up the fares and we didn't realise it would um, bother you that much. You well, know? you know, I, I think just um, to sort of build the picture out a bit, if you think about like an average working class person, so not the poorest in Chile, but an average working class person, um, the work week in Chile at the moment, the, the CP is trying to put a bill through or was before this whole thing, started uh bill through to illegally reduce uh, uh reduce the work week from 45 to 40 hours so a, a typical worker let's say a teacher or factory worker or whatever they're at work all day literally all day so that you know they get home so tired you know they've got there's still some credit available unlike you know poorer countries so you can even if you're not getting enough in your paycheck you can still go to the groceries and on credit um one of the funny things i've got to mention this because it's quite hilarious finding coming back to Australia this time. I think it started a couple of years ago, but I only noticed it when we came back after the year we'd been away, that afterpay is everywhere. Now, afterpay oh, yeah. in Chile has existed, you know, for 10 years. So people pay like uh, they might get $10 worth of groceries and they'll put it on afterpay. Um, it's called, you know, it's um, quotas. I remember the first time Joe, uh, um, my partner, went to Chile and, you know, she'd be asked at the groceries, you she know, pay for all in quarters, and she yeah. didn't know what quarter. You know, yeah, what, I mean, it's weird for ten dollars worth of groceries. So, you know, so these workers are just isolated, they're under stress, etc. So, you know, it's it's quite feasible that you get this Hunger Game scenario where the rich literally don't know because until there's political protests, it's like everything's going on in this mm. bubble, you know. And so the the spark sort of ignites it. There's been these massive demonstrations. What's been the role of the kind of working class organisations and unions so far in the in the resistance? Um, well, pretty good. I mean, it comes down to the fact, well, decent, I should say. It comes down to the fact that the CUD, the uh, equivalent of the ACTU Federation, which is strong, it'd be uh, numerically or percentage-wise probably quite similar sort of scenario to the ACTU, um, is controlled by the CP effectively. Um, and important unions like the teachers controlled by, if not the CP, uh, the Frente Ampli or some variation of the left. Um, but especially the CP's role has been important in keeping the CUT at least in the game. Uh, so they haven't been leading, you know, in terms of their initiative, but they have stayed in the game. You know, they've called workers out on strike, general strike. There's even been, you know, conversation about, you know, on indefinite general strikes. But on the ground, what people are reporting, though, is if you go to these meetings, there's a lot of meetings going on, Cabildos, other sort of, coalition etc meetings you go to these and if the people presenting the more leftward positions are being you know uh, attacked by you know the cp the front mm. and the, the sort of older organized left who are still trying to steer this you know in into some sort of uh parliamentary solution um at the at least the CP to date hasn't taken a position behind the uh, pact that has been signed by the Frente Amplio um, and you know, the, the far right. Can you just say uh, what what organisation that is? So the Frente Amplio is this sort of mishmash of nine organisations. Um, not all of them are signed off on the pact. So I, I'm pretty sure the Humanist Party as a whole didn't sign off. They've sided with the CP. And then uh, all sorts of ranks are split mm. off too. But the, the key two forces outside of the humanists and other sort of green type forces, really the two guiding forces of Frente Amplio are 
forces that came out of the 2010-2011 student mobilizations, university student mobilizations, and half the parliamentarians are actual student leaders from mm. that period. So they're, you know, in their early 30s. And uh, one of the famous ones that can be seen in a lot of the Facebook pictures you see of the press conference where they signed this pack is Boric, who was uh, one of these student leaders from that period, who mostly have some sort of uh, variation of um, social democratic, anarcho, swampy politics, basically. Mm. I don't know how else to define it. Um, and as you can sort of uh, expect, they came out to the right of the CP and it didn't even take long to come out to the right of the CP. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty amazing kind of sellout very quickly as well. Uh, I mean, the police repression has obviously been a feature, the role of the military, and in particular in Chile, like the police and the military are much more highly paid, have a particular privileged position in society. Can you just say a bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, I'm trying to remember the figures off the top of my head, but I think, like for the example, pensions and yeah, all that kind of stuff. so police pensions, I think for, no, sorry, soldiers' pensions are, if you're a normal soldier, not an officer, roughly nine times an average pension. I think an officer, maybe 16 times. They're the mm, sort of figures yeah, anyway. And, like and police. Massively different. Yeah. yeah, but not just even. Um, First generation. So, for example, I have rallies whose um, uh, parents who died a long time ago, so, you know, who were cops in the 60s, their pension, so their son's, or in this case a daughter's pension, is substantially higher as well because they're part of the sort of service police family, yeah. um, you know, like vets here. Um, so the idea of the police bro- sort of breaking ranks or the, or the army or whatever, the kind of special privileges that they have. Seems pretty unthinkable, right? Yeah, especially the police. I mean, the army's always a bit more questionable. And I'm trying to track down some things. I don't know if you saw recently, if anyone saw on Facebook, there was a couple of interesting images um, because stuff is coming out from obviously people's phones, wherever they are. And I saw a fascinating image up north in Chile and I'm trying to get verification of when it happened and all that. But it looked pretty real. It was some soldiers who were in a big truck and instead of attacking this big crowd, the freeway, they raised the Chilean flag and mm. people started coming towards them and then there was this big celebration. I mean, any possibility, police, no chance. I mean, the police, you know, there's image after image. It's just I've stopped sharing them on Facebook because, one, they're depressing. They don't really tell you much politically. But today I saw another one of this two cops be- beating, trying to beat this grandma who must have been, I don't know, like 80. Yeah, it's um, just, yeah. It's disgusting. They're endless. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's no need for any evidence there. For, uh, yeah, for the role of the police. So what do you think are the possibilities from this point on? Are you feeling like what's the significance of what's happening now? Do you think even if this current wave of struggle is pushed back or, uh, you know, people sell out, sign a parliamentary, you know, deal or whatever, that the issues are not going to be resolved, surely? No. I mean, I think what's going to happen in Chile is what's going to keep happening for a while yet in all of South America arguably the world, which is, it sounds trite, but I mean, basically there is no revolutionary poll. Um, and that just means that every mobilization ends in, whether it's partial victory or partial defeat, in a sense, the end is still relatively the same because there's no way forward beyond just the next few months, or, you know, be, uh, to, towards the next crisis. So mm-hmm. you can have a defeat, but only, you know, only sort of to be followed in six months by another 
crisis mm. and potential defeat, or the other way around. Um, so it's not to say there won't be victories. I think there'll be some victories, some important victories will come out of this inevitably. Some of them are organic. Like, for example, I think one thing that very few people have talked about, but I think is a massive thing in Chile, is that whatever else happens, this m massive wave, because of its depth of protest, is, has politicized and incorporated into the Chilean working class the millions, because it's millions of migrants that have come to Chile. The biggest migrations in South America, internal in South America, have been to Chile because, of course, it was the economic miracle. Mm. So figures are now in the at least four or five million in the last five years. We're talking about a 25% you know, increase of the population. And these are all migrants who are coming in who are have no political experience in the Chilean context, mm. but they're being politicised. Some of the most sort fantastic... Forces at the issue, right? Yeah, there's yeah. some fantastic images of Haitians, you know, at these protests, you know, with their, you know, their own instruments yep. and whatever. And that's something that's going to, that's guaranteed. That is fantastic already as a result. Politically, other things will happen too that will be good. Like it will definitely, some reform of the military constitution will have to happen. Whatever, however, eventually mm. that will happen too. But what you can't see yet um, is, you know, and this again with Bolivia is a similar thing. Like I think the Bolivian coup will be defeated. I think possibly days. Mm. Uh, will be defeated, but what will come out of that? You know, because there's no political pole, and that's the argument for rebuilding uh, revolutionary left organisations <laughs> yeah. all around the world. On the other hand, I mean, I, I agree with that, but on the other hand, the ruling classes around the world and in Chile, what are you going to do? What do they have to give back to ordinary people to make them less frustrated and angry? You know, can you live on credit forever, or you know, like? There's nothing really in the system that can stabilise things from their end. They're not about to give up their wealth. No. And, you know, we were talking before about this sort of Hunger Games thing of how isolated the ruling elites are globally from, you know, the, mm. the masses. Actually, you can quantify that in important ways. One really important political way to quantify that is that if you look in almost any country in the world now, including in Europe, some exceptions, England's still an exception, but in most countries now, the old ruling class parties that had subsist, that had subsisted and ruled for the ruling for the bourgeoisie throughout the globe for about 80 to 100 years all those parties have dissipated so now you've got comedians being elected as presidents in Italy or you know whatever i mean it's bizarre but it's everywhere's the case yeah. you know um, media personalities is the main people now getting elected for far right forces people who once played a president on a TV show. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But the, the interesting thing about that in terms of the, the Hunger Games discussion we're having before is that what that means, among other things, is that those old parties, like in Chile that meant the Christian Democrats, for example, mm. those old parties had organic links into the whole of society, not just the ruling class. You know, so they had members, families who were thousands of members who, for whatever reasons, religious or whatever, just false consciousness, supported them, supported them over generations. Those parties don't exist. Pinera is a good yeah. example. He doesn't have that behind him. No base, yeah. No. So, yeah, nothing from the point of view of the ruling parties is stable either. Whatever yeah. they achieve is unstable. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to wrap things up. I wanted to just ask you to give us a couple of what you think are your favourite um, slogans from the struggle. I know you've said a couple. There's one I wonder if you can do the Spanish version it was something like they've taken so much from us, they've ended up taking away our fear. Yeah. No, Is that the correct nos translation? Quitaron, tanto que nos quitaron el miedo. They took so much that in the end they took our fear, fear away, um, which, uh, yeah, it sort of sums up, I think, a lot of the the sentiment or feeling of people. Um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of sort of uh, slogans. I'm just trying to remember them all. I mean, the, the, the overriding thing, of course, in Chile is the Chile Despertor, which is, you know, we've awoken, mm. um, which is, I think, even though it's not super hip as a slogan, is probably a really useful thing to popularise because, in a way, it's what we're facing throughout the world. You know, like the whole thing of, it's not like people are living it really well anywhere, yeah, uh, but they just haven't awoken. So in that sense, it's it's a useful sort of um, catch cry. There was one. Well, here's the other one I have. We go for everything or we go for nothing. nothing. Yes, yeah. I love that one. Yeah. yeah, I think that's coming for a lot of students. That's like a life slogan. <laughs> yeah. And that reflects the fact that's on you know on the ground. It just reflects the fact that uh, people just don't want to be conned. You know, with this with this pact. Or yeah. And every struggle, you know, the lessons that people learn that just you can't take away those lessons, you know. That's happening in Chile. The world is waking up. And you're listening to um, Red Flag Radio. Thanks very much, George DeCara, for joining us on Thank the you. podcast. And thanks, Liam, again. And uh, keep tuning in and keep subscribing, rating, reviewing, and tell your friends. Revolutionary power to the students and workers fighting in Chile. Chile.